Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, the On Mute Series 2, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and sharing some good news, I'm pleased to announce we now have a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself and Eunice Olumidi and my fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers. Lifting the mute button, we learn about their life's journey, how they got their big break, and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. Now, the killing of George Floyd, Chris Caber, and similar instances has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limited aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation, and preventing the deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized, counterproductive, of course, for society at large. And as we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. So this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good, helping to level the playing field to enable a full contribution from every sector of society. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guests' favorite piece of music, signaling different stages of their life. And joining me today is Dr. Gus Casey Hayford, British curator, cultural historian, broadcaster, lecturer, and the current director of the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum East. And we're going to be roving around discussing African history matters, but life and time. So welcome, Gus. Welcome. Thank you so much, Lord Hastings. A real pleasure and a privilege to join you. Well, our privilege and pleasure to have you, I have to say, far more important. So let's get into your first track, Marvin Gaye. We all know Marvin Gaye, but mercy, mercy me. Why? One of my great heroes, as well as Marvin Gaye, is my, my sister, who is a, a little older than me. And um, one of my earliest memories is of her standing by. We had the, the biggest um, radio that you could imagine, something that sort of, it was kind of a feature within our living room. And my sister, I can just remember her dancing to, to this. And it was obviously really moving her. So I stopped and I listened to the words. And it, and it, it, it reminded me, for, well, for the very first time, became aware of, of how one could create something that was beautiful, but also that could have such profound meaning. And in that period, you know, I was young. I was um, very, very young. But it was, it was kind of setting out a kind of a thesis around the environment and around our responsibility to it. And I realized the power of the arts, not just to move you emotionally, but also to array, raise your kind of political awareness in ways that very little else, I think, mm. can. Wow, well, that's a very good explanation of a beautiful piece of music. Now, you becoming director of a really majorly globally re recognized and respected cultural institution, such as the VNA, that, that's a hugely impressive 
achievement. So let's go to the young Gus and understand really where you've got this gut for arts and for visualization and for life from. Just tell us about mum and dad and family life and home. I'm black British. My father, Ghanaian descent, who was born in um, on the coast of Ghana in a in a town called um, Cape Coast, and um, he came to Britain in the the sixties and um, came with my mother, who's Sierra Leonean, and both de deeply aspirational from a fam both from families that were very middle class and successful. Um, his father had been a lawyer and a politician and they had this real drive to succeed but arriving in britain in the 60s us growing up in the 70s and 80s that many of the sort of aspirations that they would have immediately have had for us that they could not be have been met without real challenge without really kind of trying to break the sort of paradigm because in that period you know peoples of color that they weren't well represented in the sorts of areas that they wanted us to succeed in and we wanted to succeed in ourselves and so they really kind of began to prep us in ways that we would have would be able to deal with the challenges the ambient challenges of that period and that was mostly around confidence raising around setting really hugely high standards for ourselves that weren't necessarily always the standards of our teachers or our peers but standards that they felt that we would need to attain if they want if we wanted to achieve and succeed in britain in that period and you know the phrase imposter syndrome which seems to circulate around in the black world overly far too much were you specifically tutored by your mom and dad about how not to feel imposter syndrome? Absolutely. And I was, you know, we were aware that um, my, my grandfather was a politician who had, he had um, gone to university at Cambridge um, and then he'd been at, in a temple. He was born um, 100 years before I was and he had, encountered huge challenge but had taken on those challenges and had succeeded against all odds when there were no models there were no kind of paradigms no there was no example for him to lean back upon and yet he managed to set his own course and so they were determined that we would succeed but they were also wanting us to invest in trying to look at that generation of of African leaders, of scholars, of politicians who had invested in trying to um, use education, of trying to use self-confidence, of trying to use um, African history as ways of building their own self-confidence. And so they invested in us, but they also wanted us to to find our own reserves and resources within ourselves to build resilience and confidence. And it's something that I think has really served us all well in, or in all of the different kinds of areas that we've focused upon. Because for all of us, we've had to spend periods of our professional life when we were the only person of color working in those areas. Very often, I'm sure, for my siblings feeling kind of isolated but at the same time not wanting to 
that to become an encumbrance um, and so uh, but at the same time not wanting to lose contact and connection with one's own sense of identity so that was a difficult and complex balance but at the same time I think it gives one something additional something a spark something that is that makes every day a struggle that is worth fighting for that you know that you're constantly thinking of the reasons why it's important that you attain those um those goals that you push on however however kind of um hard things get that you you thinking of reasons why that sit beyond yourself and was was sending you to boarding school part of your parents desire to toughen you give you greater strength of mind and to toughen me but also i i mean if if anyone knows my siblings that we aren't we aren't as a family we aren't tough in the way that you know i i would imagine one would use that word traditionally in in relation to to people's personalities that we are kind of quite sensitive and we kind of all share a, a degree of introversion and we all kind of have public persona at different in different ways but that is overcoming i think with something which is a familial trait which is introversion but i think what sending me away to school was about was rather than toughening it was actually kind of broadening my horizons and offering mm. me the chance to meet to meet a variety of different kinds of people and to real and to realize with my siblings they seemed from the very youngest of ages to um possess a sense of drive and huh. a sense of what their standards might be were their own that was really kind of deep it was scary watching my my brother joe who um was the uh, you know who who was my oldest br brother and watching him draw as a as a as a young infant infant one of my youngest memories and just seeing someone who we're just with a, a piece of paper and a pen create something that was as close to kind of witchcraft as you could imagine because he produced something that was exquisitely beautiful that it it was unbelievable that someone could just sit and could produce that just with their hand and a piece of paper and a realization of of what self-discipline of what raw talent of what concentration of what broad knowledge could actually bring to someone and so when i went to school having had my three siblings and my parents as examples of of how application and discipline and imagination and academic rigor how those things could transform you going to school and realizing that there was this well of opportunity to try to expand one's understanding and opportunity that i embraced that and i embraced it and because i think my parents very even though they were kind of very aspirational they're very liberal as well in that you know so when i when the arts were the thing that i gravitated towards seeing kind of particularly my my brother and my my brother joe who became a fashion designer but also my other brother who went into television they both possessed these incredible sort of um 
artistic imaginations and seeing them develop it lit in me a kind of a thirst for the arts to explore it to discover great expertise but also to find ways of promoting it and from a very young age that was something that i discovered in myself and so you you really grew a love for galleries and for museums and would you go and spend a lot of time on your own there yes most holidays when i would come um up to london and because i was a boarder so i didn't know very many people in the local um vicinity where we lived in and so i would spend my time in museums and galleries which thankfully as they are now were free at the point of access so i would take a drawing pad and i would draw you know i would visit the vna which you know today i'm one of the directors there and it was just amazing to go into those spaces as you know very young young enough so that the security guards would be thinking you know that's young boys been sitting there for three hours drawing you know who you know that but i would visit the british museum i'd visit the national and i would get to know those pictures and those paintings as friends and that um i um you know gombrich and all of the kind of great the great visual art tomes the great books that are written on the story of the visual arts i read those books until the um the spines fell off until i knew huge passages of those books off by heart and um so when i would go and got the chance to see these things it was it was like seeing relatives that you'd only seen photographs of seeing them for the mm. first time and falling in love in the in a very particular and realizing something of the privilege of proximity of being able to actually be in the same space to breathe the space where this is a drawing by leonardo da vinci this is the great master actually stood his relationship to this piece of work was exactly the same as yours hundreds of years ago i mean that kind of free song when you've read about these people and you hero worship them that kind of connection across time and across geography was profound and with that came a realization that you could bridge those gaps across time and geography and that there was something really powerful in that which could which could become political because the differences that were i could see as a kind of a young black um person in london the differences that made me often feel marginalized feel excluded i always had a belief that they were differences that could become overcome through the arts if people my theory was from a very young age if people had a real understanding of the genius of african creatives of african artists if they had an understanding of the sophistication of of african culture of of peoples of 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 african descent of the major contribution that they had made to our cultural understanding it would transform people's understanding of difference of so many of the sorts of of racial limiting views that certain sorts of people have of people of color were derived through ignorance through lack of understanding of the complexity the depth the, the sophistication of other cultures and i felt if we could open up the doors and give people a sense of 
of not just the cultural complexity of, 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 of other cultures, but also of how so much of what we felt was our own, um, were our own kind of um, um, cultural icons were in some way connected to, based upon, derived from the cultures of the wider world. And that, mm. that was exciting to me. And I thought that was, if I could be in any way part of a force that could confer some of that knowledge, that would be something that would be well worth a lifetime's work. So you went from an elegant boarding school in Dorset to the School of Oriental and African Studies to SOAS in, I went in to London. SOAS. Yes, which I adore. And like SOAS is one of those places where, you know, it has this history of producing, you know, brilliant um, global leaders, great people from business and from the arts. But what connects them, the connective tissue, which is part of the SOAS, SOAS ethos, is something about thinking about the alternate view. That there is the kind of establishment view, there is the kind of the accepted view. But are there other ways of thinking about the world, other kinds of solutions to those problems? Are there other ways of thinking about things? And that was always the SOAS philosophy. And it's something that, you know, when you graduate, you may go away with a certificate, with you know, with you know, new friendships and great memories, but I think the great thing that you leave with is this understanding that the world could be different, and possibly one of the things that you could most worthily contribute is to occasionally raise the alternate view, is to listen to the quiet marginal voice, to shine a light on some of the sorts of forgotten narratives and to make sure that the sorts of people who so often are seen as being kind of minority or marginal are given a voice. And, and, and that so as philosophy is something which, you know, if I'm in any meeting, it is the thing which, which will kind of drive my, my kind of primary motive for the interrogation of anything that anyone says. So let's talk about your second track of music, Ricky Lee Jones' Satellites. Yeah. You have such interesting choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, um, I mean, I, I, I listen to a lot of music and I walk a lot. I've always kind of walked a lot. And I've done a number of series of, 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 of programs in which I've, I've walked with, with various celebrities for Sky and we've, and, and it's a series I've absolutely adored, but it it harks back that actual um, um, that actual kind of uh, TV format to my love of walking. And when I walk, I listen to music, and I use it as a a mechanism for for thinking, for resolving problems, um, for for also for writing as well. Um, that I do a lot of writing, and so much of my writing is actually done away from you know pen and pad or away from um a computer it's actually done in my head whilst i walk and this piece um you know um satellites which is you know about it is about kind of you know love and the people that support us 
but it's also about the inward sort of spaces um, that are important, the reserves that we have within our consciousness. And so quite often when I've been felt challenged, when I felt down, when I've um, felt a little lost, that this has been one of the tracks that I've I've returned to. And, you know, over the course of the, the last um, two years that I've suffered kind of two major bereavements, my brother and also my mother, and that this was the track that in in those periods when you feel a little bit lost, that your anchors have felt like they've become kind of um, decoupled from the things that you mm. care for, that this has been the track that I've turned to. Mm. So very, very, very meaningful. Now you embark on a on a period of travel. You travel extensively across across the continent of Africa and its countries and Latin yeah. America. And, uh, which shape a lot of your thinking. Uh, yes. Just give us one or two vignettes of what that travel, what did it imprint on you? I've I've always I've always travelled. I mean, when I um, got to kind of um, seventeen, that um, I, I read about kind of you know from Laurie Lee to um, uh, you know constantly reading Jack London. Those, those sorts from a very young age. The books that I read were about people who would leave home very often with very little, but come back with a whole kind of changed perspective. And I never had money when I was kind of in my 20s, but I traveled a huge amount, you know, traveled up and down the spine of Africa, traveled across its deserts, went, you know, traveled to its highest peaks. And um, I, I traveled to almost every country in the continent, traveled through Central and South America, Europe, you know, from the very youngest ages, I was traveling across Europe, traveled even across the Soviet Union as it was then, um, and loved it. Traveled in Asia, and um, but possibly I mean, one of the trips I really loved was I cycled from Delhi to Agra in, in India, and choosing to cycle was a very conscious thing because I wanted to move at the pace that many of the people there moved. Oh. But it also gave me the chance to do something which I hadn't done for a long, long time, which was to draw and paint as I traveled to, to stop and to see, and just the architecture. And for me, on one morning, um, sitting in um, a very kind of small Sikh temple, and um, as the people came to worship, the building was utterly silent, and they had they allowed me to stay in that space and just to paint with watercolor just this glorious scene of the people as they came to worship. And I felt incredibly privileged, this idea that one can be given the time to travel, but then also to not, to not feel strange. I mean, so much of my life as a young black man, I felt sort of marginal or strange. But in this situation, in a place where I didn't speak the language, in a place where I didn't understand the culture, that I wasn't part of that particular congregation, but they invited me in and they made me feel really kind of part of, of their world. And I was able to capture that feeling in little kind of watercolour. And um, it'll, it's something that I will never forget. And I think that as well is the power 
of the arts is, you know, that I would hope that in generations to come, it's not a great painting, it's not a great, it, it wasn't a, a deeply profound moment, but I would hope that someone could look at that work and they would understand that someone was moved in that time. And that's one of those things which transcends geography and transcends time is that sense of connectivity. And so for me, travel, but also personal little moments as one travels have always been very important. And you then go on to take on a very, very major, what we would call cult TV series, the South Bank show. I mean, we all have memories of the <laughs> South Bank show, let alone the introduction of music and the imagery, but that must have allowed you to express all that you'd traveled and seen and painted. And were you, were you structured by the program makers? Were you free to do what you wanted? I was deeply intimidated by it, but as an opportunity, I could not turn it down. And the South Bank Show, as I'm sure you know, is a it's a program that was through most of its its history, it was presented by Melvin Bragg. But in the very kind of rare instance, they offered up opportunities to other individuals that they gave me the chance to present a program on African art. And I'd never presented before. But not only had I never presented before, it was presented, it was actually filmed on film, not on video. It was pre, pre the use of, of video. And so, and so every single scene that we shot was shot in tiny little segments of, I think, something like eight or nine minutes. And you had to get it right because it was so expensive and so complex. And we would arrive in these tiny um, towns and villages in on the coast of Ghana with three vast sort of pantechnicons full of equipment, dozens and dozens of staff who were enormously expensive. But at the end of the day, that all of this money, all of this expertise, and everything invested in getting this absolutely right, because this was a story that that the South Bank had chosen to tell, um, but it all rested upon me being able to deliver, to communicate the reason why what I was going to say about African art was worthy of these people watching on a Sunday evening and was equivalent in terms of its cultural and intellectual stature to the things that they'd used, used been used to seeing, like Kiri take an hour or um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, that you wanted to give someone who knew nothing about African art a sense that this was equally or even more important. And so those things rested on my shoulders. And um, it's how when you're given an opportunity to do something and you feel possibly I'm not up to it, but also that I cannot walk away from this and feel that I didn't deliver. And you know, I feel very proud that that was a, a um, my very first foray into television, and it, it went on and it won awards. And um, you know, possibly I was lucky, and I worked with you know great crews and you know brilliant editors, and you know the team were just fantastic. But I am also quietly quite proud of the fact that I could step up to the opportunity and deliver something that I think 
you know, everyone felt pleased with. And you, you really love to portray not just African art, but African culture very, very positively in your films. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I grew up as part of a generation who we, you know, we would constantly be seeing those kind of swollen silhouettes mm. of young children. We would be seeing um, the stories of, of African leadership um, not living up to um, the needs of, 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 of their populations. We would just be seeing these images of people um, of African descent in negative contexts. And so I have been determined, determined throughout my career to counter that. So that, you know, I went on after that to do a number of series, Lost Kingdoms of Africa, in which we wanted to completely take apart African history and re-present um, re it as it actually is, as being the kind of the cornerstone, the actual underpinning of so much of that we understand of global, of, of the global story. You know, this is the place where the great intellectual discoveries um, went on. We wanted to put those into context. You know, some of the great sort of architectural interventions are made. We wanted to show that history. And so I felt that's something that I've always, because I didn't have it as a child. I did, when I went to, to look for culture, it was the culture of Europe. Occasionally that one might see, you could get kind of views of Egypt, but it was Egypt as it underwrote European culture. What I wanted to do was to say, no, we have our own story. It predates the European story. It's longer than any other hysterical, historical or, or cultural trajectory on earth. But also, in my mind, it's richer, it's more complex, and at its best, the manifestations of, of African and diasporic culture are some of the most significant and beautiful that you could behold. And I wanted to make people aware of that. So I, that's something that I've dedicated my career to doing. And it's not a weight, it's not an encumbrance, it's not a duty. It's been nothing but a thrill and a privilege to be able to do that. So you have great recollections of the Africa 05. Yeah. Almost like it was a campaign, wasn't it? That you, working across channels and pulling material together. And I mean, it, what do you feel is the lasting legacy of that time? Well, well 2005, that I, I felt, you know, I've been working on, on, on trying to promote Africa for a number of years, but across the museum and the television sector, there had not been a moment in which everyone had stood together and said, it's important that we acknowledge the contribution of Africa. So I thought, if we create a season where all of the national museums, where we get all the TV channels, we get them all in alignment and get some of the kind of the major kind of shops and, um, and restaurants to, to work with us, we could create a moment that would shift the paradigm completely. And so we did that. And so we got more than 150 venues, all of the national museums. We got the BBC, every single channel. We got, you know, every single Starbucks. Starbucks rebranded their cups so that they all had Africa 05 and the logo and the web. These, this was before this sort of thing was really done very much. And it caught fire. And 
it was an amazing moment. And the legacies of that have been um, commitments by museums to think about these issues and these, these areas. And, you know, I look across the sector and I see kind of areas of programming. I see acquisitions. I see, um, you know, I see whole departments that were invested in in that period that continue to play a major part in cultural delivery today. So it's something I'm enormously, you know, I feel pride, but I just feel incredible kind of um, privilege in, in having been a part of that. We need more of it. I mean, we need more of it because, you know, whilst it kind of shifted the dial, the dial needs to be continually mm, pushed. Mm. It's not something that we can be complacent about. So you have a number of other successes that which follow on from that. You become executive director of art strategy for the Arts Council. You then work with David Lammy, Minister of Culture, uh, and later a TV series called Wonderful Africa. And you're sort of defined by an endless turn of successes, but you also have external roles that you, you do. Just tell us about one or two of those. It's important that the establishment, that we actually change, we shift the dial. And so... I've always served on boards, the National Portrait Gallery. Um, I've served on the board of the National Trust. I've always wanted to contribute to those sorts of institutions, those blue ribbon institutions that basically set the narrative of Britain and its culture. I wanted to get them to begin to think about their ongoing structural responsibility to thinking about diversity and particularly in relation to Africa and people of African descent. And I feel delighted. You know, I served on the um, on the, the Tate Britain Council and I look at it today and I see it as an institution that is absolutely kind of hungry, really kind of aggressively trying to think about how it addresses diversity and the sector has changed enormously, and I both feel frustrated about, you know, how much is left to do, but I'm also someone who, my career is long enough, and I am old enough to have, have seen how far we have come, and to feel a great deal of strength and pride in, in knowing that if we can build that momentum, if we can create that kind of change that we can overcome the remaining challenges that I do believe that we can and, and the things that have happened over the last two years there has been I mean of course there's been consciousness raising over the whole course of my career but over the last two years there's been a recognition that we can't continue to just dance around the edges we can't just do kind of little we need fundamental change and one gets a sense that even through this period of covid of 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 resource tightening that the ambition is bigger that the the kind of hearts are beating faster and that we will deal with those interminable problems that seemed when i began my career like they would be many lifetimes away from being resolving I actually believe that now we, as a generation, will see some of those big challenges really met. And so you received an OBE in 2018, which is a tremendous accolade, but you also 
get a wonderful role in the United States. You're on the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art in Washington, D.C. So the accolades continue almost unabated. You continue to flourish in what you're doing and in your new role, of course. Let's just go on to your, your next piece of music and then start to talk specifically about your, your plan. So Mikey Mike doing me? Yes. Well, this is, this is the other side of me where I'm, you know, it's quite a sort of rebellious little tune because it's, it is about kind of not forgetting you. And that I do think, you know, a lot of people of color that they give and they give and they give, and they are constantly under pressure to feel that they are doing the right thing because this level of scrutiny is so great that you, you know, any fissure, any weakness will, you will be judged really acutely. And there is a kind of a point in your life when you are exhausted, when you feel the weight of it all to, to almost be too great. And you need someone to put their hand on your shoulder and say, don't forget yourself, you know, that you are also important in this as well. And that you need to think about the ways in which you can also be happy within this, that seeking to be happy is not a bad thing. And it can't just be the privilege of the white majority that they can have a kind of an ease in their life and that they can negotiate success and happiness in a way that is, is reserved for them. It must be occasionally right that people of color can have periods in which they truly can let go and enjoy themselves. And so what this song for me is a reminder of is work ferociously hard, give 200%, you know, show commitment in your spare time, make sure that you are again, kind of applying yourself to thinking about how you help others, but also occasionally remember and think about your own mental health and your own well-being. You know, occasionally do the thing that Mikey, Mikey he says, you know, I'm doing me. Mm, so important, so important. So take us in now to this wonderful new role for the VNA. You're headhunted for it. You've got a great vision for it. What are you going to create? <laughs> I mean, it is it is a kind of wonderful kind of culmination of everything that I've I've, I've worked for and I feel hugely privileged and um, really happy to, to have this role. And it's building a new museum, a new national museum. And what a pri privilege is that um, in East London amongst communities who haven't traditionally been, uh, been um, in close proximity to, to um, collections and resources of this sort of nature. And it's to build it's to relocate um, our collection center that's 280,000 objects, mm -hmm. more than a thousand archives, and a library of art books of more than 360,000 titles that will be relocated to this new space in East London. But what we don't want to do is to just have this as a collection center. 
that the idea is to change the paradigm. So rather than it being a space where just academics and art historians are going to come and look at beautiful, gorgeous things, we want this to be a space in which anyone can come in. And within reason, we want anyone to be able to have contact, hands-on contact, without an appointment, without saying, you know, here are my, my doctoral certificates, be able to come in and handle these glorious things and have time with them and have time with the experts who can talk you through what these things are and where they've come from. But then also what I would love is that we create the digital interfaces so that our visitors themselves can then tell us what they think and feel about them. Many of the people who visit, particularly in East London, which is one of the most culturally diverse parts of Europe, they can leave behind their interpretation of these objects, many of which may have genealogical connections to, to our visitors. And so it's going to be a glorious space, which is um, designed by Liz Diller, who's one of the great architects of this period. She designed the High Line in New York, and she's constructed something which is beautiful. It's um, a wonderful open space with glass floors, glass balustrades, so you can stand in the center of the building. And if you were to pirouette round, you'd be able to see the greater part of 280,000 objects. And that is just one of the buildings that, um, the, that I have responsibility for. We're also building, designed by O'Donnell and Toomey, two award-winning architects, a new museum that will show the very best of, of, uh, of the arts and, um, and, um, and material culture across 2,000 years. Um, and this will be a space that will show some of our collections, but also great exhibitions. Um, it's going to have restaurant and, and shop, and it's going to be a glorious space. And this is all down on the, on the, old, on the, on the Olympic Park in, in East London and it will be part of a new community of institutions all focused on the arts and learning. So it's a really exciting time, a wonderful project, and I feel, once again, I, I mean, as I talk about my life, I realize how lucky I've been. I feel deeply lucky and privileged to be in this position and to be doing it at this time with this particular focus. And are you having to contend for the money, or is it a straightforward process we have some of the money secured i mean of course we will need to to fundraise for um some additional money which this period of building during during the pandemic has created all kinds of logistical complexity that were hard to quantify in terms of budgets and so some of that will will work its way through and we'll have a kind of sum of the additional amount we'll have to raise but also we'll have to raise money for programming so those things will we'll, we'll have to find solutions to so we are looking for for partnerships we're looking for funders and donors that can help us to navigate some of that we want to bring the very best of cultural practice to this bit of east london and so that will require that will require money and so um you know the VNA are brilliant, and the, I'm so grateful to them for giving me this opportunity, but also for, for having the vision to invest in East London, which is a place that has created some of the great um, visual art over the course of hundreds of years, and to give back. I see it as being an investment, and I hope that donors and sponsors will also see it as an investment. So for 
the program and for the small amounts additionally that we need to raise for the building, I am hopeful that we will find the money to, to meet that shortfall. Just one of our, our last points. You, you've said many times in this conversation how esteemed and privileged and joyful your life is. And you've had so many phenomenal, compelling, rich and beautiful experiences. And you get to create yet more, but you know the world out there for so many people in the marginalized communities, black communities feel disconnected from all of this. Have you any a quick reflection about the state of race relations that you want to get out there? You want to say something that's been burning in your heart? And one of the things that deeply upsets me is this ambient kind of war on woke. You know, this idea that um, the, the people who are fighting, you know, on a daily basis to try to bring a wider awareness of cultures, of peoples, of, of creative practice, and that have traditionally been marginalized, of, of making us become more sensitive, more open, more tolerant as communities, as a country, as a nation. Those are people that we should be celebrating. I look at Britain and its history, and we are a nation that is built around cultural diversity. If you think about other nations within within Europe, so many of them, um, they chose to create their identity around big themes, big, big kind of, you know, if you look at the, the, the kind of French tricolor, that it's about creating identity around big, cohering themes. In Britain, we accepted from the very beginning with our flag, cultural diversity, difference, that we are a number of discrete nations of different kinds of people that come together. This is the critical thing. Difference that comes together to make a coherent and glorious, wonderful, unified, but diverse whole. That is what makes Britain great. And today, it isn't just the home nations. It's a complex glorious kind of agglomeration of a huge number of new voices that are added to that and make us into the great nation that we are. And when you see us on the football field at our very best, you see us demonstrating that history, that cultural complexity, and it working together. And when you see us in the art sector, you know, if you think about us at our best in terms of music, in terms of the visual arts, it demonstrates that cultural complexity. The idea that celebrating that complexity, looking back across history and trying to show how people of a variety of different kinds, how women, have, people of, of, of various classes, how, how peoples of a variety of different uh, ethnic backgrounds, how they have contributed to making this nation great. The idea that that would be in some way seen as something worthy of denigration, that upsets me. That is the thing that we should be so proud of. That is the thing, as we go forward beyond Brexit, that we must wrap ourselves around. If there is any kind of thing that we're going to kind of raise a flag and dance around, it is that as our future. That is our past. You know, let's embrace it as our future. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, sadly, 
I think that's all that we've got time for. And we could obviously talk for hours and hours, days about the experiences <laughs> that you've had. Thank you so much, Gus, for joining us today, opening up about your rivetingly fascinating life and incredible experiences and relationships and aspirations that you've got. I know what you've said will stick with us and with all of our listeners consistently. So please join us next time on BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, a business leader, or famous personality. Until then, you can subscribe, review, leave your feedback, wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you're a leader and you'd like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fairer society, please contact us at info at blackbusinessinstitute.com. But until the next time, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.